I used to give this talk that was entitled The Nine Lessons Learned from Failure. And the theme around that, the basic idea is that one, failure is the best teacher, success a terrible teacher, right? And with each startup, not just my own, but other people's startups, there's like two awesome things you get from it. One is you learn something, usually. And two is you have awesome people that you run into that you, if you're lucky enough, you get to take them with you. If you were lucky enough and treated them well enough, then you get to take them with you along the way. You know, they kind of like become your crew. So I feel like I have like a small crew now that I'm very grateful for. Welcome to Brave. Learn from Southeast Asia's best tech leaders. Build the future, learn from our past, and stay human in between. No BS on success. I'm Jeremy Ao, venture capitalist, serial founder, Harvard MBA, science fiction nerd, and dad of two daughters. Every week, we debate startup news, interview changemakers, answer listener questions, and share personal insights. Join our movement of over 40,000 members and get transcripts, resources, and community at www.bravesea.com. Stay well and stay brave. Are you expanding or launching a business in the Philippines? Ensuring your employees' good health is key to attracting and retaining top talent. That's where Hive Health comes in, especially for startups and small to medium-sized businesses. They specialize in providing top quality and hassle-free healthcare plans tailored to your workplace. Learn more at www.ourhivehealth.com. Hey, Sunny, really excited to have you on the show. We had such a wonderful dinner conversation at the Hustle Fund camp. I just thought that this would be an amazing journey to share. Sunny, could you share a little bit about yourself? Yeah, that was a lot of fun in Bali. And it seems like a, a world ago, but it's only been a few weeks. Gosh, time's flown by. Yeah, so a quick background on myself. I was born in Vietnam, came to the United States as a young boy, refugee. Grew up in the Midwest, Oklahoma City, and went to University of Illinois and then MIT for university, grad school. The plan originally was to be a professor, to be in academics. And then one thing led to another, and I ended up being in startups. And so I've been doing, I've just been swimming in startups for the last 25 years. Founded five of my own, ran a couple, invested in a bunch of others and advised countless others. So I've just really enjoyed that world. Amazing. Could you share a little bit about what you were like growing up as a kid? Oh boy. When I was a little kid, I, I was always my brother's little sidekick. I have an older brother who's six years older than me. <laughs> and so I was just a little kid that would tag along uh, a lot of the time. But honestly, I think I was pretty much clueless. When I came to the US, one of the stories my friends used, to, I'm still in touch with my friends from first grade, my friend John, he said, Sonny, you used to always get mad at us because you wouldn't understand why we didn't understand you. You get upset because you just speak to us in Vietnamese, expecting us to understand and be upset that we didn't understand you. And I'm like, okay, that sounds like me. I don't remember that, but that sounds like something I would probably do. But I had a great childhood growing up in the Midwest and I've always loved study. That was one of the things that I've always really enjoyed. And I don't know, maybe someday I'll come back to it. Aww. I have to ask, what would you study? I've actually been working on preparing to do a PhD in math. So math is really my real passion in life. So whenever I have time, I kind of steal away with my books and problem sets and whatever. So yeah, someday, but I don't know. Startups are uh, all-consuming right now. Yeah. Growing up, you studied in university and so, so forth. Like, and then you started going to more on the engineering side. Could you share a little bit more about how you chose uh, this major? Yeah, so I applied to University of Illinois Aerospace Engineering. Then that's what I did. And then within the first day of orientation, they tell you, look to your left, to your right. Only one of you will be left after by the time you graduate. And I thought, oh man, those guys are gone. I'm totally, I'm going to stick with it. 
And of course, within two weeks, I decided, wait, I don't think this is for me. I'm like, okay, I'm going to be designing landing gear for the rest of my life. Forget it. Not doing that. And so I go ahead and take my math and science stuff. And I decided, oh, I really like art. So I actually transferred from the College of Engineering to the College of Fine Arts. I don't know if too many people have done that. And so I wanted to be a sculptor for a while. Wow. And then my roommate, who was very wise, because if he would have told me, you know, it's a useless degree, never going to get a job. Of course, if he said that, he knew that I would ignore him. And so he was much smarter than that. He said, you know... Real artists don't need degrees to do art. I'm like, oh, that's a good point. And anyway, so I realized what I really enjoyed all along was math. So I became a math major and really did fall in love with that. That's what I did for a while. And then, yeah, school has always been a big part of life. I ended up studying abroad. And then while I was studying abroad, I learned about languages and linguistics. And I ended up last minute applying to both linguistics and math PhD programs, which basically means I didn't know what I was doing. Because usually by the time you apply for a program like that serious, you should probably know which one to go after. And then also very characteristic of me, last minute, I kind of decided to do linguistics. So that's why my PhD was in linguistics at MIT. And it was mainly because I had a chance to study with Noam Chomsky, who was kind of yeah. a hero. So, yeah. so that was it. amazing. So I had to ask, I mean, a lot of people kind of say like, oh, mathematics and linguistics is left yeah. brain, right brain, they're totally separate domains. For you, it felt very natural. Could you share about how that intersection worked for you? Yeah. You know, art, math, languages, I felt like it's all kind of one mishmash. And it's just things that I like to do. I like images, I like pictures, I like numbers. I think most importantly, I like beauty. I feel that in math, I get to appear into creation and see beauty in its most pure form. Things that I feel like I, if I'm able to prove them, they were true before I was alive and will be true long after I'm dead. So I think it's one of the coolest things that you could do. You shared that Noam Chomsky obviously was a role model and hero for you. Could you share more about how you got to know him and what he was like in person? Yeah, no, Noam was great. First of all, he was just an incredibly kind advisor. For someone that kind of well-known and had that kind of demand on his time, not just in linguistics, actually mostly outside of linguistics, people were wanting his time, but he was too busy for, the, for his students. So we always had a chance to be able to meet with him. It's not very hard. I mean, he had a book ahead of time and stuff. But yeah, he just knew a lot. I mean, he would say pretty controversial things in every domain, in linguistics, philosophy, whatever. And you just think, oh my goodness, how are you going to defend that position? And then he does it. He has knowledge, the references. And so I always felt like I had to think twice. And debating with him was just brutal. I mean, I don't think I ever cried. But anyways, he's an incredible teacher. And I, I think he's often misunderstood. He's very misunderstood. Let me just say that. Especially when he talks about AI, his positions about it and whatnot. What he's, what, how he, I mean, his position's evolved over time. But yeah, I think he can be easily misunderstood. I'm so curious because obviously you looked at him, studied under him, obviously you've seen him evolve over the years. How do you think that he's misunderstood? Well, I'll just say one thing. When people ask, what do you think about AI? And, and I asked him that because I, I wanted to work on, you know, computation. So I, I was doing my computational linguistic stuff on the side, almost secretly, even because most of the work at, at MIT Linguistics was very theoretical in nature. And I, I really think, the difference is that the generative uh, linguistics enterprise, analytic philosophy, a lot of that stuff is after, is really trying to plumb the depths of the mind and trying to understand how our mind works. What, what are the mental models that exist? That kind of thing. Whereas AI, I think to many people, it's really just an engineering kind of challenge. I mean, there are philosophical questions, obviously, but I feel like people are trying to do different things. One's trying to understand the mind and the other's trying to build useful stuff. And those are just really different enterprises. Yeah, really interesting. Like you said, was doing something on a site which, which was computational linguistics. And you went off to do that twice, right? Once at, as a researcher yeah. at Microsoft, eventually as a CTO right. and founder of Firespout. Can you share about how that all came together? Yeah, so I was pulled in as a subject matter 
expert or whatever for a uh, business plan competition. So at MIT, they, they, there's a general encouragement to do that. At the time, there was a competition called the MIT 50K. And uh, the yeah. idea is you win. Well, you didn't actually win 50K. It was more like 30K. And then there was because 50K was the total amount of prizes. But anyways, that someone was doing in a uh, natural language processing project. And they wanted an expert. They thought somehow I was one, silly them. But I was like, sure, I'll help out. And then I watched how a business plan was formed and written and defended, how judges, the kind of questions that judges ask, what investors ask. I thought, wow, that was, that's fascinating. I'm like, wait a second, I can do that. So the next year, I decided to give it a shot and wrote my own business plan. And I, I did not end up winning, but we did get funded. So I guess that counts for something. And that was for Firebell, machine learning assisted natural language processing. But I'll have to say this was back when NLP didn't really work that well. So the demos were cool, but in terms of being able to make a really useful product, that was much more difficult. And what's interesting is that uh, actually my second startup actually went through MIT 100K. So oh, right on. Okay. We didn't win. We were one of the folks that still got supported by MIT. Uh, nice. So it happened like dozens of years after you went through the experience. At yeah, this was up. in the mid nineties, man. This was like 97. Yeah. So it was long time ago. It's like inflation. So it's just double the size price pool. Yeah, now there's like multiple 100 Ks. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. So what's there is that you decided to become entrepreneurial. Was that something that you felt like was a no brainer? Was it something that you had to be much more intentional about? I wish I could say I was intentional about it. And I wish I could say I was intentional during at any point in life, but, but that's just not true. I've just generally pursued things that I enjoyed doing. And that's what I did. I thought, wow, this sounds fun, but it's a different part of the brain. It's not just abstract thinking and theorizing, which is fun. I love doing that kind of stuff. Love learning languages, love doing math, love solving problems. But this is another kind of problem because there was a very a, a deeply human dimension to this. And so I did it just because it was I found it a thing, thing to do. Someone had already created kind of a template for me to do it. So, I was, so that's what I did. And, um, and so Firespout was just an incredible learning experience. It was a year, you know, we barely made any money, you know, enough to, you know, pay for rent for a couple of years, but that's about it. But boy, did we learn a lot. Yeah. And what's interesting is that you went off after selling to an Ask Jeeves in mm -hmm. 2001. You went on yep. to become a founder again, right? So at, yeah. At so I, I was trying to, I actually, at that time, I'd gone back to try to finish my PhD. You know, Asian mom always saying, hey, when are you going to finish your degree? I'm getting to it, mom. I'm getting to it. And then shortly after going back into my program, my partner, Sridhar, pulls me out and said, oh, no, you don't. We're going to do this again. Because I had pulled him into doing my first startup. And then, so we, all right, fine. So we do our second startup, which is called Argumatrix, which was doing electrochemical biosensors. And so just in general, I mean, there's a general theme of where I'm just a sucker for, I guess people call it deep tech these days, which is Silicon Valley parlance for science-based technology or some sort of technology based on some sort of breakthrough. So scientific engineering breakthrough. And so we did that. That was Argumatrix and just the two of us in our apartments built a blood glucose sensing company for the diabetes space. And yeah, that was a good run. We did that for about 10 years, built it from nothing to, I think at peak, we had over 90 million revenue. And then anyways, we eventually sold it, did a deal with Apple and then Sanofi and whatnot and ended up selling the company. And then yeah, the rest is history. We've done a lot of, we've done a number of these things together now. Yeah. Amazing. And after that, you went off to build uh, Misfit Variables right That's after. Right. So back to yeah, back, kept yeah. going. Yeah. So at that time we had a CEO in place for Archimatrix and I've been there 10 years. So I was like, okay, ready to go. And so I left and started and actually i left because i was on a vacation at the time i was with my wife in israel 
to actually she was there to teach. And so I accompanied her and I was just going to take time off. But then one thing led to another, a series of weird coincidences and providential events that basically led me to start Misfit. And yeah, and so I pulled in Sridhar. And then at the time, it became, I had become friends with John Scully, the former CEO of Apple, kind of a weird friendship. But the three of us banded together and started Misfit. So, I mean, they were not operating founders. They were on the board. So I was the sole operating founder for the business. But it was, well, that, that, that was, I don't know, for me, a historic time. It was actually, we founded the company on October 5th, which was the day that Steve Jobs died. And we kind of named the company Misfit, kind of as a tribute to him. One of the great Misfits of all time, right? And what a cool name for a company that was about fitness technology and about wearable stuff that should fit. Right. So we had a good time just getting started, but boy, I didn't know what we were getting ourselves into because when we started, there were 20 companies that were competitors. And by the time we got our first product out to market, there were 70 competitors. Oh my goodness. I'm like, wow. <laughs> Such, I don't know if that was in, but the funny thing is though, is in retrospect, it was actually amazing timing because it was during a hype cycle and Honestly, we just had to be better than the other folks because everyone was interested in a wearable technology of some sort. Yeah, I remember actually uh, being a misfit and buying the Jawbone Up24, which turned out to be still simpler from my perspective, but it turned out to be not so reliable, unfortunately. <laughs> it uh, broke down. Yeah. yeah, well, you know, there were, we had several uh, pretty tough competitors out there, Fitbit, Jawbone, at the time, Fuelband, Nike Fuelband, if you remember them, and uh, Y-Things. So four really tough competitors and dozens of copycats. And then we were kind of like the fifth, somewhat original, I would say. And so we quickly became third or fourth in the market in a short period of time. And it was primarily because I think we were, we, we just found a really awesome market for it. I mean, the product was not necessarily, wasn't like this amazing product. In some levels, it was actually a very basic product, but there was a market that wanted a basic product. So that's what we went after. Yeah, it was a very interesting time. I remember going to the Quantify itself. Ups and everybody would be comparing their various devices. <laughs> that's right. It's well, time, that's funny because yeah. when I talked to the quantified self folks, you know, and I'll tell you this, Jeremy, we cheated. You know what we did what? was I went to Amazon.com and read the reviews for Jawbone, Fitbit, Why Things, all of those guys, right? And I remember Fitbit, it was like nine pages. I still remember. You know how you click through the bottom, like one, two, three, it goes up 68, 169. I read every single review for them. Jawbone had like 53 or something pages with, I think in total, we read about 5,000 reviews. It was a heck of a lot of reviews. But I read and I kind of learned what people loved and hated. And I still remember it was like, you know, it had to be comfortable. They hated charging. They, had, they hated products because it didn't look good. They couldn't make sense of the data and just reliability. And so... I said, okay, if we can nail two out of those five, three out of those five, then I think we're good. And in fact, however many we nail, let's just focus on one of the five that we, we nail and then go to town. And so that's what we did. Because the, the basic question that we asked ourselves was, why is it that people, why do people buy wearables? And you ask people, they say, well, and the vast majority have said, oh, because I want to live longer or live a healthier life, which didn't make sense to me as an answer, to be honest. Like, I just didn't believe them because I said, if you are really serious about getting healthier, you just eat less, you know? Like, why do you need to spend $100 to tell you for a product that you might not use to tell you that you're not moving enough? You already know that. So I thought there must be another reason. And then as I thought about it more, talked to more people, my hypothesis was, I think there's like three kind of concentric rings of types of people who are buying these things. You've got people, marathon runners, active, regular working out people, and then there's the elite athletes, regular working out people. But one ring out would be people who want to work out and want to be active. Yeah. Okay? But I thought there's got to be something else missing here. 
So I thought, wait a second. As I talked to more people, I realized there's a third rate, which is people who want to look like they are healthy, but don't really want to work out. Because I don't think anyone really wants to just work out. If you had your way and you could get the benefits of working out without actually working out, I think the vast majority of people would prefer to not just to just not work out. And so I'm like, okay, let's go after that group because that is probably the largest group out there. And so we, uh, that's what we did. So we went after folks who, so we never talked about, you know, mm. heart rate. We never talked about data. We never talked about the megahertz and gigabits. And we don't know technology, no fitness. Okay. We never talked about any of that. We just had interesting people doing really interesting things and looking great doing it. Because that's, I think, what people wanted. And so we said, okay, let's go for that. And if we can actually encourage those people to actually work out or to change their mindset about health, then we win from a missional perspective. And I think we win from a business perspective as well. So that was what Misfit was about, was going after that segment that actually just that, that outer ring of, of uh, customers. Yeah, I definitely agree that uh, Misfit definitely had the style points for sure. Yeah, that was the focus. Uh, Jobboard Up24 and uh, Fitbit even for a good long time. You know, Jobboard had, it was beautiful and a bold design. I yeah. give them that. But yeah. we had one test, which was cool. So I would pull out our product first through people and say, would you wear this? And they and often people would say, well, what is it? I'm like, it's the thing, this little silver disc. Oh, yeah, I'd, I'd wear it, I'd wear it. Okay. Then I pull out the jawbone up and I'd say, would you wear this? And they say, well, what is that? And I'm like, nothing. It's just a thing. They're like, no, why would I wear that? And then I pull out the, you know, the other competitors and they, and I said, would you wear this? And they're like, well, why? And what is it? And I'm like, nothing. It's just, you know, no. I mean, so I, I was basically asking, would you wear any of these as jewelry? And the answer was no. And for us, most, like a lot of times the, the answer was also no, but it was like 30% of the time people say, yeah, I'd wear it. And then they say, well, what does it do? And I was like, yeah. it doesn't do anything. And then I was like, okay, I think we're on something here because it did actually do something. <laughs> Exactly. Though we did find out later that a fair number of people, probably, I don't know, we estimated 8, 9, 10% based on usage patterns and sales data, that around 8, 9, around 8 to 10% never used the battery on the product. What? It's just always, it was this They jury. just wore it. They just wore wow. it. Wow. You know? Yeah. Oh, this bonkers. It's like, I mean, it shocked me that any number above zero, right? You'd think <laughs> it would be zero. It was, it was like 8 or 9. I mean, it wasn't like a huge number, but it was like 10-ish percent. That's a good chunk. Uh, that's a huge yeah. customer persona right there. Yeah, um, so th that's who we went after. And I remember reading news back then, right, that it was acquired by Fossil for $260 million. That was a huge yep. exit. Uh, yep. I think, wow, like, you know, a huge dynamic there. And then you worked at Fossil for a couple of years that's after right. that and grew the business to over $300 million uh, annually for Fossil Group. Yeah, a little bit more about that whole experience. Oh my goodness. I, I will just say in summary, it was more providence than being good. Okay. I think a lot of people talk about how, you know, oh, we did all this stuff and then it just happened. You know, translation, I was awesome, right? Let's be very clear. There was no awesomeness involved. It was pure providence. It was just given to us. And because of, you know, and uh, you look back, the timing was impeccable. It was really good timing. I think we did serve a, a market need. That's one. And we found really a perfect partner. Our acquirer was someone who cared about that segment, who has always been in the fashion industry and was a world leader in fashion wearables. And so fashion watches and wanted to have a presence, a larger presence in the wearable space. So we were incredibly fortunate to have them just to be matched with them. So we're just so grateful for that opportunity. It was a fabulous exit. It was, you know, from when we first funding was in April, 2000 Founders Fund backed us and they just... We love those guys. And Chosla, the two of them co-led our Series A. And then we, to the time we sold, it was, I think, like 42 months or something like that, which is insane for a hardware company. But I think yeah. it's a testament to the timing of the market. Yeah, uh, I think it was great timing because like the competitors that you mentioned, 
Jam went one way, Fitbit has gone public, but you know, I think it's gone yeah. his own set of shoes that they have there. So- yeah, was it? I mean, after Fitbit, we were the second largest wearables exit in history. So I think that's the case. Maybe that's not the case anymore. I mean, gosh, that was a long time ago. That was until and Fitbit, but it was, yeah, we, we had a different story. You know, one was about fitness and technology. Ours was about fitness and design and fashion. It was a great way to do it. Uh, that, that, that's what we, that's what we leaned into. But yeah, it was a great time in two years at, uh, at Fossil and I didn't know what they needed a CTO there for, but you know, I was happy to do whatever it was to support their mission. So it was a good learning experience for me. I'd never, honestly, I never really had a job. I mean, that was, I kind of worked at Microsoft, but yeah, I don't know. Those were internships and kind of short stints, you know? And so this is my first like real job. It was great showing up to work, having a boss and stuff. Kind of liked it. And then you went on to keep going, right? So you worked at Impact Biosystems. Yeah, and yeah. So that's right. So after, yeah. So after uh, the fossil thing, we started Alabaster, which is our family office, invested in a bunch of companies. And then during that time, also helped Shridhar start, you know, we started our fourth company together, which was Elemental Machines, which does IoT for basically automating, helping to automate science and doing. So initially the, the positioning was that be doing lab ops analytics and monitoring for lab operations. And the vision has grown substantially from that since. And the company's doing great. I mean, I was a non-operating founder there, just as Rita was a non-operating founder for me at Misfit. And he's just done an amazing job growing a business that is now, I think it's profitable. It's Series B funded. And honestly, I had very little to do with their success. I was just an early helper. Yeah. So after that, I don't, yeah, never really stopped doing startups. And yeah, that's right. We did Impact Biosystems, which is a muscle sensing technology that's been acquired as well. Technology out of MIT, out of Ian Hunter's lab. That was a lot of fun. And then I tried my hand at operating a couple of companies. So I was an early involvement at Harrison, which is a medical AI company that analyzes medical images, chest x-rays, CT scans, that kind of thing. And then Arivo, which does 3D printing of carbon fiber. So yeah, founder, investor, operator. And I think my natural kind of place in life is probably to be a founder. That or an academic. We'll find out. <laughs> and over this grand arc of multiple entrepreneurship, both success and failure, what have been some lessons that you've had over time? Perhaps, for example, what yeah. the CEO has been good at, especially since you've done that role quite a bit? Yeah, absolutely. You know, I used to give this talk that was entitled The Nine Lessons Learned from Failure. And the theme around that, the basic idea is that I think one failure is the best teacher, success, a terrible teacher, right? And with each startup, and with each, not just my own, but other people's startups, I feel like I've learned, there's like two awesome things you get from it. One is you learn something usually. And two is you have awesome people that you run into that you, if you're lucky enough, you get to take them with you. If you were lucky enough and treated them well enough and you get to take them with you along the way, like you tell me your crew. So I feel like I have a small crew now that I'm very grateful for. And then after the recent couple of operating positions, I feel like my nine lessons learned from failure is now like more like 11 lessons from failure. And I, I feel like you just think like, wow, have I learned everything? And absolutely not. I mean, hopefully you don't make the same mistakes, but you definitely make new ones all the time. But I, I want to say that whether it was hiring, setting up the environment, commercial development, go to market, there's just a lot of things to learn in doing a startup, how to pitch, how to raise money. I've raised a lot of money, 22 venture rounds when I think about it over the 25 years, see like bunch of seed, series A, series D, a bunch of series C. 
sponsor. And I would just say this. When people say you're a serial entrepreneur, I almost never really know what to say about that because Mark Zuckerberg's not a serial entrepreneur, right? Like he made it. I'm, I'm a serial entrepreneur because I haven't made it yet. We're still making it. And I would just say that if there was one recurring theme that comes back time and again, what is the most important role? What is the role that I feel like I keep having to do time and time again, whether I like it or not? What is the role that my founder friends find themselves having to do time and time again? I'd say it's sales. Sales is it, man. It's not just sell me this pencil. That's a very kind of a vulgar oversimplification of a, of a very noble role a noble task. And that task involves convincing people to come work with you when they really should because you're going to pay them maybe half, give them no job security, and, and that's it. You got to convince, yeah, you got to convince the media to write about you when there's like nothing to write about because all you have are ideas and paper or getting partners to work with you, big companies to give you money or do something with you when honestly, they probably shouldn't take the risk of doing that because you might not be around for another six months in six months time. Trying to get investors to invest in you when it's exceptionally risky, no matter how much, you know, reality distortion or song and dance you put on, it's freaking risky. You know what you're doing. There's commercial risk, there's timing risk, there's engineering risk, who knows? And then there's the risk of, and then, you know, you're trying to convince, uh, obviously, customers to buy your product if you have one, or even buy your product when you don't have one. So this job of having to convince people to do stuff, it, it kind of in all rational thought, they probably should not. This is something you have to do time and time again. And it's not just the role of a founder. It could be whether you're a manager at an organization or a team leader in, in, in an MBA program. You're, you're constantly trying to get people to do something that they might not normally do. And hopefully it is something that's actually good for them because if it is good for them, it turns out to be great for them, then you get right. your crew. You know, amazing. Talk about what the crew is like. Oh, goodness. You know, like over the time, I'll, I'll just tell you some of my favorite crew people. Okay, I won't mention names because we'll embarrass them. But I'll just say the recurring themes for an awesome crew person. Okay, it's like crewmen, but there's also there are women as well in my life journey. Obviously, awesome skills is really important. They got to be good at something, okay? whether it's engineering, design or something. But generally, they're good at something. Okay, they have some sort of superpower. And oftentimes, in almost every single one of these crew people I can think of, that I'm thinking of right now, they have some sort of weakness, that's for sure. But it's an overcomable weakness. So some sort of superpower and overcomable weakness, that's on the skills, like stuff we can do side. But I would say the one definitely strong recurring theme is selflessness. Like they are the most awesome people because they're the people I love working with because they just, it's never, once they're kind of on board with something, and by the way, the crew isn't automatic. Like I feel like with the crew, I have to convince them like, by the way, I'm doing this now. Here's why it's awesome. And there are times when they're like, that doesn't sound awesome, man. I'll help you, but it's not awesome. And I'm like, okay, maybe I shouldn't work on it. And so one is I do have to convince them, but once they're in, they're really in and they're about the thing, the mission, not about themselves. I'll give you one example. There's one guy, I won't mention his name. People who know me will know who I'm talking about. He was the head of, he was employee number one at Misfit and our engineering head became our CTO, that person there. And I couldn't for the longest time give him a raise. He was making, I'll say it, he was making 80K a year, which is like nothing in Silicon Valley for a head of engineering CTO. He was employee number one. And he didn't even have that much stock. You know, and so for year, for three years, I could not give him a raise because every time I did, he would just say, oh, give it to my team members. I couldn't give him a bonus. I couldn't even give him stock. Every time I offered him stock, he's like, I don't need stock, man. I live simply and I love what I'm doing. Just give it to my team members. They're the ones who need it. And I mean, who, who does that? You know, truly selfless for the mission, not just the mission, but just for others. Man, that is so rare and so precious to have. 
And I don't know, servant leader, man, those are the best. Servant leader who are really competent. If you have a handful of those people, I think you can do it. Amazing. And what's interesting in terms of servant leadership is you grew up in Vietnam, you moved to, to the US, you were speaking Vietnamese yep. to your classmates. And now you're back based in Vietnam as well. And I understand that you've been helping out with the, you know, math Olympiad team, oh, right. supporting them as well. Yeah. So I was just kind of curious, how did you get about starting to do so? Yeah. Um, what you've learned along the way? Yeah, look, we've been here in Vietnam for the last eight years. I'll be here one more year, moving back to the United States, New England, New Hampshire, 30 minutes north of Boston in August 2024. So I'm looking forward to that. But we're going to make an awesome last push here this last year in, in Vietnam. And Vietnam's been, it's been a great time here. We've learned a lot. And one of those things, one of the rare treats, oh my goodness, because I love math, love people do math, right? People do math, can do no wrong with me, is we have an awesome IMO team. So the International Math Olympiad, IMO, is ostensibly one of the most difficult exams in the world, most difficult competition, mental competitions in the world, at least in terms of an academic subject. I suppose the chess championships are probably really difficult as well. Math competitions, and Vietnam is just really good at it. Every year, I think something like almost 200 companies, a lot of countries participate, but each country sends the, the top six to go. And Vietnam has traditionally done really well and so we've been, we're big fans, we're big supporters of the IMO team. We hold a reception for them. And I'm just, yeah, I'm kind of a groupie, to be honest. Like these kids, you know, 16, 17, 15, 16, 17, 18 year old kids are solving just incredibly difficult problems and making the country proud. For a country whose GDP per capita is, I think it's like an eighth of Switzerland, it outperforms nearly every country in the world. Except for last year, I think we were seventh. The year before that, we were fourth in the world. Crazy. Behind, you know, China, United States, and Korea, number four. Unbelievable for a country with a very low GDP per capita. And so always been very proud of the team, the coaches who are involved, the Math Institute who's helped hosting that. They've done just an amazing, the Ministry of Education, they've just done an amazing job for the resources that they have. So yeah, we're big fans. Yeah. I mean, honestly, I'm kind of a fanboy because I never had a, really a chance to do that myself. I always wish I did. That's so wholesome. I was just kind of curious that from a personal perspective, have there been any times that you've personally been brave? Been brave? Oh, yeah. Well, I'll tell you two quick stories. There was a time when I was physically brave. A friend, a group of friends and I were in Turkey. You know, he is, oh, 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 you study abroad in Israel. Thing you do is you go to Greece and Turkey. So that's what we did during the high holidays. So we went to Turkey and my friend saw a cliff and thought it would be, we're in the middle of nowhere, Pergamum, like Ephesus area, decides to climb it. And of course he gets stuck. And then it's a seriously scary cliff that he's trying to climb up without ropes or equipment. He thought it'd be interesting to climb bad idea. Anyways, there's another road you can go up. And the short story is that there was a moment where I had to decide, am I going to risk my life to try to risk save my friend or not? And in that moment, I actually decided, you know what? I may just die doing this, but I'm just going to do it. And just as I decided to do that and started moving towards taking steps to fish him out with the strap on my bag, there was a Turkish guy came bouncing down and pulled him up. So I didn't actually have to rescue him. But that was pretty scary. And I am no hero. Let's be very clear. But boy, that was a moment of intense fear, I have to say. So a second story that might be more relevant to the audience here is for my second company, we're doing that blood glucose sensing company and uh, we're almost out of money and we get, finally get a term sheet. Just wow, we finally get a term sheet. This was in two and boy, we were like, yes, finally, we're going to have money. These investors, I mean, well-intentioned, honestly, they're just doing their jobs, but they basically were trying to get us to screw our previous investors and cut a deal that where we would actually end up with a lower valuation, but with top-ups and whatnot, we would actually have more ownership in the company and they would have as well, but the previous investors would have substantially less. And now, of course, 
they existing investors could have just like not signed off on it, but uh, they knew we we're running out of cash, so they had to sign off on it. And the new investors knew that. And in that moment, I think Shreed and I looked at each other and we said, oh, are we going to really do this or not? We thought, no, I don't think we're going to be able to sleep with ourselves if we did this. So we decided no. And even the existing investors said, you can go ahead and do it. It's fine. We know what's going on. Enjoy the equity. And just keep the company alive. And we said, no, we're not going to do this. So we declined it. And then we almost brought out of cash because we end up using our credit cards, personal credit cards, to pay payroll for actually two months. And then we finally got a replacement term sheet that didn't have those conditions and finally get the company funded. Boy, that was a close one. But that was definitely one of those hard decisions because it's kind of morally grave, but it also was a matter of conscience and trying to live beyond reproach and i don't know it, it was hard in our 20s we didn't know anything we we're just kids but i think we knew what was right and what was wrong you know for both stories i think you mentioned some element of fear and confusion how did you go about i mean obviously they're very different types as well right one's more physical and one's more and from a considered uh, startup perspective but i'm just kind of curious how did you go about thinking or feeling and navigating through these issues yeah. i think at the end of the day it was about i mean when it's in the moment you are acting instinctively i mean certainly by that cliff i was on my own and me and God, right? In the moment of startup financing, it was me and Sridhar. And then us discussing what, how are we going to, we're young, we're early, you know, we, if this startup fails, we'll be other things to do. How's life going to be if we knew we did something that we were not proud of? And so in the end, it didn't really affect the final outcome all that much. But having the longer perspective of just thinking, how will we be in the future? How will we think of ourselves in the future? That helped kind of guide us to uh, the decisions that we eventually made. Any reflections on what bravery means or how to go about it? Well, you know, you can't really be brave or courageous unless you're afraid. So I think the first step is if you're not afraid, then I don't know, maybe if you're not afraid, then you're brave. But I think to have courage, you really have to be afraid of something. Because otherwise, that's just careless or just not thinking about stuff. Yeah. On that note, thank you so much for sharing. I love to summarize the three big takeaways I got from this. First of all, thank you so much for sharing about what you were like growing up as a Vietnamese newcomer, speaking Vietnamese to your American classmates. But also talking about life being a sidekick and also what you've learned along the way in terms of how you chose your major, how you decided to do both mathematics and linguistics. And what was it like to learn from Noam Chomsky and you know, hear and decide about different aspects and how to some extent that came together as computational linguistics which kicked off your first job at Microsoft. So really interesting early exploration of who you are as a person. Secondly, thank you so much for sharing about your entrepreneurship journey, especially with a big chunk, obviously around the wearables, but also the other companies you built along the way and what you learned along the way in terms of how to navigate financing, tough decisions that you had to make along the way. And also I think that dive into wearables about how you went to over 5,000 reviews across multiple competitors to understand what they were. And I really felt it was fascinating to hear about how you went about to benchmark them but also to think through like you said those concentric circles of why people would wear a wearable I thought that was a very fascinating study of not only product market fit but also having the iteration and learning process lastly thank you so much for sharing about your own uh, personal story of courage obviously you shared about experience about sh helping your friend during a tough time and that decision that you had to make even though you didn't have to follow through the action but you made an intentional choice but secondly of course talking about how you had to think through fundraising and that set of decisions now of course not just that but I think you showed multiple times along the way of bravery in terms of like choosing to build a startup the first time around choosing to build it again uh, so Sunny thank you so much for sharing your journey well, it's an honor to be here thanks for having me Jeremy thank you for listening to Brave if you enjoyed this episode please share the podcast with your friends and colleagues we would also appreciate you leaving a rating or review 
head over to www.bravesea.com for member content, resources, and community. Stay well and stay brave. Stay brave.